Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business in the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by SAGE, transforming the way we think and work so organizations can thrive. I'm Ed Kless with my friend and co-host Ron Baker and folks on today's show, we are very pleased to have our interview with Professor Donald Hoffman. Hey, Ron, how's it going? Very good, Ed. Looking forward to this. Yes, I've been marinating in Dr. Hoffman's work all morning. I have a little bit of a headache, I must say, but that's okay. We will somehow persevere through this. Uh, let me get the introduction done and over with so we can get right to the content here. Uh, Professor Donald D. Hoffman received a Bachelor of Arts degree in quantitative psychology from the University of California at Los Angeles and his doctorate in psychology in computational psychology from Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He was briefly a research scientist at the Artificial Intelligence Laboratory at MIT and then became an assistant professor at the University of California at Irvine, where he remains on the faculty. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Donald Hoffman. Thank you very much, Ed. It's a pleasure to be here. So I have to give you the quick background story about how I came across your work. I'm almost certain that it was a reference that another one of our guests, Rory Sutherland, who is the vice chair of Ogilvy & Mather, made to a TED talk that he saw you give. And I went through, and, and this is probably four years ago, and saw the TED talk, loved it, went out and purchased your book, Visual Intelligence, um, How We Create What We See, and was so overwhelmed, including my, and showed my daughter this, the picture of the thing called the ripple, which just absolutely blows me away every time I look at it. It is a two-dimensional image that when you look at it, you cannot but see it in three dimensions. And it is a wild, wild thing. So that was my quick introduction. I think it's on, yeah, it's on page two of this book. But I want to ask you a little bit about where did you come across this ripple? What What's the background story about how you got to this visual intelligence piece before we get into the newer work of yours? Well, at, at MIT, I was working on visual perception. And we were doing this both from cognitive neuroscience point of view, so how does the human brain work and how does human vision work, but also from a computer vision point of view. So that's why I was in the artificial intelligence lab. And so there was a, a wonderful team at MIT that had been brought together in large part by David Marr. And so we were actually building uh, you know, computer models to actually do robotic vision and studying the human brain and human perception to see uh, what was going on there. So it was it was tremendous fun. And uh, you know, so these kinds of examples were all over the place. That ripple was just one of many, many examples that the, the whole crew were, were thinking about and studying. Because the whole point is that the visual system, your eye is like a camera. It only takes a two-dimensional image. So you have two cameras, two eyes, getting flat images. And that means that anytime you see depth, you are creating all the depth that you see. And it turns out to be non-trivial how you do that. Uh, 
we have to use all sorts of computer algorithms in our computer vision systems that take flat video images coming into video cameras and to create a 3D model of a world to drive a car, for example, right? If you're going to see in 3D from flat images, you have a lot of work to do and you better do it right because you don't want to crash the car into a wall. <laughs> no, that would be very bad. <laughs> And but but that's true. So, so the the image that's the ripple, a computer would just see that as a two D image because that's what a computer does, at least initially, right? Right. It would even see it as a two D ripple. It would only see it as ones and zeros, right? Numbers for the brightnesses uh, of various image pixels. So to even go from pixels to two dimensional contours is a non trivial move uh, in in and of itself. And then you have to go from two dimensional contours to a full three dimensional image. And so this led you your work on visual intelligence, and and then the the your later work gets you to this the the case against reality, which is where I think we want to spend most of our time talking to you uh, about on this. And um, I, I guess before we start to get into the details of it, what what was the the transition like? So you went going from visual perception, then all of a sudden this the ideas of consciousness came into being. I, I I'm trying to make that connection. Right. So the the connection was that. It became very clear that we can that a, a vision system is constructing three-dimensional objects, is constructing the three-dimensional world that it sees. And it, when I began to work on the mathematics of it, it it, it be, began to become clear to me that even though most of my colleagues and myself included had thought that these constructions that 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 the visual system makes. Uh, we thought that there are reconstructions of the truth, so that there's a real 3D world out there with real objects and colors. You know, I see an apple over there with a 3D shape. And uh, even though we're constructing what we see, evolution has shaped our, our brains and our visual systems to reconstruct the truth, right? So that the you know, so we have this limit that the image at the eye is flat, so you have to construct anything you see in 3D, but evolution makes sure that that construction is right, that it's accurate, that, that it gets spot on, at least spot on enough to keep you alive, the shapes and, and also the colors and, and motions and so forth of the world around you. But it, it began to occur to me that um, maybe that's not how evolution works. Maybe we're constructing reality and we're not reconstructing reality. It's, it's, it's just a pure, useful fiction. And and, and so this is an interesting point in evolutionary theory, right? I mean, the, the point of our sensory systems from an evolutionary point of view is to keep us alive, right? They're supposed to give us the information we need to stay alive. And it's natural to think, well, knowing the truth would surely be better at keeping you alive than not knowing the truth, right? So, that, you know, so seeing the truth, you know, not all the truth. Of course, no one thinks we see all of the truth, but the, the truth you need in your niche to survive in your niche. That's sort of the received view in, uh, among my peers in, in, in evolutionary psychology and, and, and evolution more generally. But I began to wonder, you know, there's another point of view on this, and that is uh, all you really need are sensory systems that guide adaptive behavior. Uh, maybe seeing the truth is one way to do that, but maybe it's not the cheapest way to do it. Maybe there are cheaper ways to guide adaptive behavior. So that was my intuition that sort of, but so you can see where this is going. If, if we're not seeing the truth, right, then all of a sudden that brings space and time and physical objects into question. I mean, the reality of that starts to come into question and that then opens you up to other possibilities, right? So, so the path was sort of an interesting one where I start with, we construct what we see, Hmm, maybe we don't reconstruct the truth on evolutionary grounds. If we don't reconstruct the truth, what is the truth? And then, then it opens up the possibility that maybe it's not you know, what we thought it was. Maybe, 
consciousness is fundamental. Now that last step was a bit of a is a bit of a leap because you might say, well, why why to go to consciousness? And the reason for that is that there's been a big problem in cognitive neuroscience for decades now, actually for centuries, but but really sharp for decades. We can't figure out how consciousness is related to brain activity. I mean, we know that there are these correlations. I could spin off dozens of correlations that we know. So we have all these correlations between neural activity and conscious experiences, but we don't have a single mathematically precise theory about how a particular kind of neural activity could cause a particular conscious experience, like the taste of vanilla. Like what is the necessary and sufficient pattern of sodium and potassium and calcium ions flowing through neurons uh, you know, in particular part of the brain that must be, for principled reasons, must be my taste of vanilla, could not be the smell of a rose. And we can't do that for one specific conscious experience, not one. And I mean, and my colleagues who are working in this field are brilliant. I mean, these guys have IQs out the wazoo. If these guys can't figure it out, I began to think, well, maybe we're making a false assumption here that, you know, the, the idea that the brain and physical objects are fundamental and they cause consciousness, which is something that is you know, it's hard to question. I mean, that seems just so obviously true, but I began to question it. And you have to go wherever the science takes you. And that, it's, a, it's an uncomfortable place, but that's where I've been playing. <laughs> I love this quote. You say, cats can't do calculus. Monkeys can't do quantum theory. So why do we assume that homo sapiens can demystify consciousness? Perhaps we don't need more data. Perhaps we need is a mutation that lets us understand the data that we have. <laughs> that is certainly a possibility. It, it may be that uh, we're not equipped you know, evolution, you know, from an evolutionary point of view, um, we have the concepts we needed to stay alive. And, mm-hmm. you know, we, we, the most gifted teacher could never teach, uh, you know, a monkey quantum mechanics. No matter how good you are as a teacher, you, there just aren't the, concept, the concepts in the monkey to do that. So maybe this problem of how is consciousness related to the brain, something that's beyond homo sapiens ability to to reason about it so i mean that's a possibility i, I mean i i don't want to go there right now I, I i would like to give it the good old college try and sure. say you know <laughs> may, maybe it's not because we're stupid maybe we just made a really simple false assumption like that brains cause consciousness or physical systems cause consciousness maybe we just reverse the arrow if we start with a mathematical model of consciousness and and show how space time and what we call physical objects arise in that direction, then maybe we can solve this problem. But we'll see. You know, you have to you have to do the work. Perhaps one of the more bizarre things that I came across after reading your work that at least made me stop and go, huh? And I, I, maybe there's nothing to this, but there was a, a, a position that was put forward that said, perhaps people with advanced autism are an evolutionary step forward in their ability to process some of this stuff. And I was like, when you hear that initially, like that just seems ridiculous, but I guess it's theoretically possible that they are just perceiving things differently than we are. Absolutely. And there's a whole class of people with uh, a sensory adaptation that's called synesthesia. Um, And so these people have perceptions in multiple senses of what we only experience in one sense. So for example, to be concrete, one guy, everything that he tasted on his tongue he would also feel with his hands in 3D as, as an object. So the taste of mint on his tongue felt like a tall, cold, smooth column of glass right in front of him, you know, like a couple of feet in front of him. He could put his hands on it in 3D. He could feel the cool, small column of glass, and he could feel the weight of it. And every taste had a 
different touch. Uh, Angostura bitters felt like a basket of ivy. Carol syrup felt like a, a box of, of BBs that he could put his fingers in the BBs. And so from an evolutionary point of view, there's no such thing as you know, the right sensory system or the, or the directed, you know, mutation that's, that's supposed to, you know, take the species to new levels. There are these random mutations and um, some of them may accidentally help, help you, you know, and others may more likely hurt you. And so, so it's not in that sense, a directed mutation. There, there is a notion of directed mutation where perhaps the parts of your genetic system that need to be more flexible in a certain you know problem will be more you know open to you know mutations but it's not directed mutation even those mutations in that area are random so 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 yeah but absolutely you're, you're right that there are all these mutations and our sensory systems are not done we're in the process four percent of our population have synesthesia so that's a lot of a lot of random mutations going on there sure wow this is just fascinating stuff thank you uh, professor hoffman we are all at our first break already i can't believe it the time is flying by i want to remind our listeners that you can contact ron or me by sending an email to ask tsoe at verisage.com the website is the soul of enterprise where you can see show notes to our previous 300 plus shows and well as well as previews to upcoming shows but right now a word from our sponsor. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I recorded the advertisement for Ron and Ed's book, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Blah 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 Whatever, and four years later, we're all tired of it, especially me. But thankfully, there's a solution. For just $10 a month, you never have to hear my voice again. For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe now. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll-free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. We're tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here with Donald Hoffman, the author of The Case Against Reality, Why Evolution Hid the Truth from Our Eyes. 
And Don, as we were talking about during the break, I just, this book just really makes you think, but I love some of the metaphors you use, like the, the, the email on your desktop, it's there to hide the truth from you, but help you do useful things. And you, you say, that's what evolution has done. And then you, you wrote this, you said, the truth won't make you free. It will make you extinct. And that's kind of where you begin to talk about the fitness beats truth theorem. Can you explain that? Yes. So it's very intuitive for us to think that seeing the truth should be a help in survival, that those of our ancestors who saw reality more accurately had a competitive advantage over those who saw reality less accurately in all the basic operations of life, feeding, fighting, fleeing, and mating. And, and so the ones who saw more accurately had a, uh, you know, a better chance of passing on their genes which coded for the more accurate perceptions. And so as a result of that, we would expect that we're the offspring of those who saw more accurately in each generation. And so we see pretty accurately what's out there, not all the truth, but the truth that we need. So when I see an apple and I see its shape and its color and it's two meters away from me, that's because there really is an apple. It really does have that shape and it's really two meters away from me. And that's that's the truth. And that would be true even if there were no creatures there to perceive it. So that's that's the normal intuition. It was my intuition as well. I mean, that's, that's the way it seems. But it turns out when you actually look at the math, so the nice thing about evolution by natural selection is that in the 1970s, uh, a a British mathematician named John Maynard Smith turned it into mathematics. It's called evolutionary game theory. So we don't have to actually wave our hands now about what evolution says and say, I think this, oh, we have to look at hundreds of animals and see what happens. No, we can actually look at the mathematics and, and run simulations and look at theorems and proofs. And so that's what I started with, with a couple of graduate students of mine, Brian Marion and Justin Mark, back in around 2009. We ran hundreds of thousands of simulations just to see what would happen. And what we found was that those creatures in our simulations that saw the truth weren't out competing the creatures that saw none of the truth that were you know of equal complexity uh, and were just tuned to the fitness payoffs and we can talk about what fitness payoffs are but so that made me think there's a theorem here and so i went to a mathematician chaitan prakash and we worked on it together but of course he's the math genius not me and we we came up with a couple of theorems that, that that chaitan proved and they've been published now and the bottom line is this the probability is zero that any sensory system of any creature tells it any aspect of the true structure of the world. Probability is zero. Our sensory systems have evolved to keep us alive full stop, not to tell us anything about reality. And just like you said, if you have a, a desktop interface on your computer where you're, say, crafting an email and the email icon on your desktop is blue and rectangular in the middle of your of your screen does that mean that the email itself in your computer is blue and rectangular in the middle of the, of your hard drive of course not i mean anybody who thought that it, it completely misunderstands the whole point of the desktop interface it's not there to show you the truth which in this metaphor would be the voltages and magnetic fields and the circuits and the software it's there explicitly to hide the truth. If you had to toggle voltages to craft an email, good luck. No one would ever hear from you. And, and that's the point. Seeing the truth in that sense gets in the way of doing what you want to do. And so that's what evolution did. It gave us sensory systems um, which hide the truth. And that's not an accident that they hide the truth. It's by the very act of hiding the truth and giving us the right eye candy that guides adaptive action that they keep us alive. So you, when you write an email, 
using your interface, you are toggling with, you know, with each keystroke that you're doing, you're toggling who knows how many millions of voltages. Well, thank God you don't have to keep track of all the millions of voltages you needed to, to toggle to, to change the state of the computer. So, so if you had to do that, good luck, you, you'd be so, and so that's what evolution gave us. It gave us simple things like apples and you know trees and forks and spoons and so forth. Those are the simple things that we see and we interact with them, we think it's the final reality, but what we're really doing is toggling all these voltages in some other reality that you're completely unaware of. Um, and if you had to do it by, you know, explicitly, you would die because you wouldn't be able to do it right. So that's what, another metaphor, it would be if you're playing a video game, like Grand Theft Auto, multiplayer Grand Theft Auto. Um, again, you got a virtual reality, say a steering wheel and a, you know, a car and you can see a red Ferrari over there that that's you're, you're racing against and so forth. Uh, you're toggling millions of voltages in some supercomputer when you play the game. And if someone was trying to beat you by toggling those voltages to, to win the game, they couldn't toggle them fast enough to keep up with you. You turn your steering wheel to the left, you're doing millions of things in the computer the other guy couldn't keep up. And so that's what evolution gave us. It gave us a virtual reality headset. Space-time is a VR headset. For computer science folks, it's a data structure. Space-time is not the objective reality. It's a very sophisticated data structure which dumbs things down, compresses them, so it's data compression, error-correcting code kind of thing, that allows you to control reality with utter ignorance about what that reality is that you're controlling. Well, you mentioned eye candy, and you have a beautiful discussion about beauty and how it's not about objective reality. It's about fitness. And I just thought that was great. I, I remember uh, Ed mentioned Rory Sutherland. We had him on, and he he does he says this all the time that the peacock uses its tail, you know, as a way to signal. And this is why women chase guys with Ferraris, not truck drivers. <laughs> right. So our our experience of attraction is very very interesting from an evolutionary point of view. From evolutionary psychology, that hit when you the initial hit when you look at somebody and you you know you get the hit of attractiveness you know or, you know from zero to ten right. Um, what is that? Well, it turns out that that's one of the most sophisticated computations your brain ever does in your entire life. It, your your visual system and your your sensory systems more generally are hoovering in hundreds of you know, dozens, perhaps hundreds of of cues. Um, the quality of the skin, the smoothness of the skin, the length and, and lusciousness of the hair, um, various features of the eyes. For example, does there is there a limbal ring? And I can talk about what that is and so forth. You're, you're taking in dozens and dozens of these sensory cues and you're doing a computation. The computation is this. Given these cues, what is the probability that the person in front of me could successfully have and raise kids? Now, so, now, you're not thinking about that consciously. That's not, you know, you, you, you just look at the person, you go, oh, they're hot or, or, or not, whatever it might be. But, but, but you're not consciously, you, you know, evaluating, could they have and raise kids? But that's what's going on in the circuitry of your brain unconsciously. That's the evaluation. And, and the cues may not all be um, agreeing. So they, some cues may say, this person is healthy. Uh, other cues may be saying, no, this person is not, and, and so forth. But the bottom line is you have to take all the cues and come up with a final answer, you know, from zero to 10. And that is what you then feel just as this intuitive feeling of attractiveness. And so, so there's a lot that goes on in just this looking at a person and in about 400 milliseconds evaluating the reproductive potential of that person without even knowing that that's what you're doing.
That's amazing. Um, and, and the other thing I have to ask you about this, because this is just mind blowing. If I'm sitting here looking at a spoon and I turn away, is it still there? And you wrote something like, well, it, it, something is there, but it's not a spoon and it's not in space and time. <laughs> yeah, that's hard, that's hard that? to wrap your head around, right? It, it is. It is. But here's, here's an example. So, so again, say you're playing Grand Theft Auto. And uh, it's a multiplayer game and you're playing with f- friends from around the world. And you, you, you have he- a VR headset on and you look over to the right and you see that red Ferrari. Well, now you might say, I'm going to prove that that red Ferrari really, ex- really exists because I'm going to close my eyes and turn my headset away over there. And I'll ask Joe who, 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 you know, in China who's playing with me, Joe, can you still see the red Ferrari? Well, and Joe might say, yeah, I can still see the red Ferrari. Well, that's because he's got some, he's looking over here with his headset. There's certain photons being sprayed to his eyes from his headset. And so he's creating in his own mind this image of a red Ferrari. But there's no real red Ferrari there. And so now I look back, I turn my headset over to the right again, and I see a red Ferrari. That's because I'm creating the red Ferrari again that I see. So think about it this way. The red Ferrari is a data structure that I create when I look over there. And then I turn my head and I delete that data structure. I don't need it anymore. I garbage collect it. And now I'm, I look over to the left and there's a green Mustang. So I'm creating now the green Mustang. So that's what happens with the Apple. I look over there. I create an icon that I need that I call an Apple. And when I look away, I garbage collect it. My friend over there can say, I still see the red Apple. But, but that's just because he's got his headset on and he's creating his Apple. His Apple is his Apple. It's not my Apple. And that's why he still sees an apple. So it's, if you think, by the way, all my ideas that I'm talking about here, if you think about them in virtual reality, you will get the right intuitions. And that's just, that's the big shift. We thought that space and time and objects that we're seeing, we, we were embedded in the truth. Just change your point of view to say, no, I've got a headset on. This is all a VR headset. There is a reality out there, and it's utterly unlike the VR headset that I thought was the truth. If that's the only shift I'm asking you to make, that's it. Right. And I love it. You, you even anticipate some skeptical questions. Like if I don't see reality, why does my camera see what I see? Or how does a driverless car work? Can you kind of explain that? Because I can see people raising those types of objections. Right. So once you have a user interface that allows you to navigate a certain set of data, a, a certain virtual world, then then you can do that with all sorts of other tools. So, so for example, um, there are software classes now for labs where students can go into this virtual laboratory. And in this virtual laboratory, there are virtual um, microscopes and virtual cameras and, and virtual test equipment. And so the students can go into this virtual laboratory and pick up all this equipment, look through the virtual cameras and take pictures, look through the microscope and so forth. And as long as the interface is consistent, right? If, it, if it's a well-designed interface, then the cameras and the telescope and all the equipment in it will work, will work just fine. And so all we need is, is for evolution to give us a consistent user interface. And then we would have all these consistencies that we have taken, we've just assumed mean that we're seeing the truth. And by the way, there are no selection pressures for us not to believe that we're seeing the truth, right? I mean, uh, an organism that takes its, perceptions seriously, right? If I see a snake, don't pick it up. If I see a cliff, don't jump off. So I have to take it seriously. If I also take my perceptions literally, that re- there really is a snake there. Not only can, uh, do I have to think about the snake as it, it could hurt me, but, but the snake is real. Well, that's perfectly fine. And there's no selection pressures for us to recognize that we're not seeing the truth. As long as you act correctly, 
if you believe what you're seeing, then you're fine. And so that's what evolution has sort of done. It's just left us believing that our headset is the truth because there's no reason for it to, to tell us otherwise. Why, why should you need to know that your headset isn't the truth? It's, it's good enough for you to believe that. And, and frankly, it's so counterintuitive um, because you know evolution hasn't shaped us to think otherwise. Don, this is great. Well, we're up against our break, but this is like being in a graduate seminar. I really appreciate this. And folks, I'd like to remind you, if you want to contact Ed or me, send us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Check us out on patreon.com slash TSOE, where you can subscribe to our show. And that is now sponsored by 90 Minds. It's a matter of mind. Check them out at 90minds.com. Now, a word from our sponsors. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever listened to an online radio show that changed your life? I'm required to say that I have. Have you ever stopped listening to an online radio show because the commercials were mind-numbingly repetitive? Of course you haven't because you're here right now. Look, you don't have to listen to me anymore. There's a commercial-free version of this show, and it only costs $10 a month. And for $15 a month, you get no commercials plus bonus content. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE, subscribe now, and be free. You're worth it. From the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. The book is The Case Against Reality, Why Evolution Hid the Truth from Our Eyes. The author is Professor Donald D. Hoffman, who is with us today on The Soul of Enterprise. And Don, I want to ask you now about the con- the com- concept of consciousness. And you write, um, all attempts at a physical theory of consciousness have failed. They have produced no scientific theory and no plausible idea of how to build one. The failure, I think, is principled. You simply cannot cook up consciousness from unconscious ingredients. Yes, this is what's called the hard problem of consciousness by my brilliant colleagues in cognitive neuroscience and philosophy of mind and also computer science. And it's the problem is this. First, by consciousness, I just mean something very simple like your experience of the taste of chocolate or the feeling of a headache or the smell of a rose. So nothing exalted, you know, exalted states of self-consciousness, just something that I would imagine a mouse smells cheese and uh, can taste cheese. It has conscious experience of cheese. The question that we're facing, the technical question is, uh, 
we would think that brain activity, for example, somehow causes our conscious experiences. That's the standard view. For example, uh, if I take a magnet called a transcranial magnetic stimulation device, a TMS device, and if I touch it to my skull um, just above my left ear uh, and inhibit an area of my brain called area V4 on the left hemisphere of my brain, then it turns out I will lose all color experience in the right side of my visual world. The right side of my visual world will just turn to like a black and white television screen, but the left side still has color. And then I turn the magnet off, and the color comes flowing back into the right side of my visual world. So here I've manipulated with a magnet the, the state of my brain in my left hemisphere, and I've had a change in my conscious experience. Surely that proves that brain activity causes my conscious experience, in this case, of, of color. And, and that kind of Neural correlate of consciousness is what my field is studying. We have hundreds of neural correlates of consciousness like that. But what we don't have is any mathematically precise theory that says this pattern of sodium and potassium and calcium ions flowing through neural membranes must be the taste of chocolate. It could not be the smell of garlic. And this is the principled reason why. And if I change this pattern of flows in this particular way, then my conscious experience would be switched from the taste of vanilla to the taste of, you know, garlic. We don't have that kind of theory for even one specific conscious experience. In other words, there's not one specific conscious experience of any kind that can be explained with mathematical precision um, at all. And this is not because the people involved in this aren't smart. Many of these are, are good friends of mine. These guys have IQs off the wazoo and they, they can't do it. We have general theories. We have theories that say maybe there's some kind of um, causal computational structure of architecture of, of brains or other physical systems. This is integrated information theory. With the right causal structure, the right integrated information, somehow then consciousness will arise. But when, when I ask, I mean, for example, Giulio Tononi, a very brilliant researcher who's one of the authors of that theory, Giulio, okay, great, nice theory. So can you give me an architecture for a conscious experience? What is the IIT architecture for the taste of chocolate or, vanilla, or whichever one you want? Can you give me one? I asked him about that back in the 1990s. He couldn't do it then. I asked him a couple years ago. He still can't do it. Not one. <laughs> and, you know, Penrose and Hamroff, again, brilliant people. Penrose just won the, the Nobel Prize for his work in physics. So they have this notion of um, microtubule quantum states that have orchestrated collapse. And if you have the right orchestrated collapse, then it leads to conscious experiences. So in a conference a few years ago with Stuart Hamroff, we were on stage. I said, great, Stuart. Okay, give me one. Uh, what is the orchestrated collapse for, again, the taste of vanilla or, or what, whatever one you want? Can you give me one? And he hemmed and hawed, and I kept pushing until he said, I can't give you one. And and so, so again, now, the, the standard view, I think, is these guys are hunting in the right directions, but they still haven't been able to, to nail down a specific conscious experience. And I'm saying, no, there's a principled failure here. There's a principled failure. We've assumed that space and time and physical objects are the fundamental nature of reality. We assume that neurons exist and have causal powers, that neurons cause our experiences and they cause our behavior. But that contradicts evolution by natural selection. Evolution by natural selection says that the very language of space and time and physical objects is the wrong language to describe objective reality. So, strictly speaking, neurons do not exist when they're not perceived. Just like we talked about the red Ferrari in the VR game, 
I turn my headset over there and I see a red Ferrari because I'm looking over and creating one. Well, when we look inside skulls, we create neurons. And that's the only time neurons exist. There is some reality that I'm interacting with that's always there, but it's not neurons and it's nothing in space and time. So the assumption that neurons create or that physical systems like these silicon circuits create consciousness or could create consciousness is wrong from the get-go because we're assuming those things have an objective reality and they don't. So then, and it's, it's funny, a, a friend of mine, high school friend of mine, po- just posted an article last week that uh, f- from those two scientists that you, you mentioned about the, the microtubules. So thanks. You already covered the question that I had for you around that. So then you go the other way and say, OK, well, then what we need to do is we need to argue that consciousness is the foundational building block and that that it is conscious units that create more consciousness. Do I have that sort of right? (laughs) That's the proposal. And of course, um, that's partly from the poverty poverty of my imagination, right? So we've been trying to solve this hard problem of consciousness. We've been assuming that brain activity somehow is fundamental and it creates conscious experiences. Well, I've now discovered that evolution says brain activity is not fundamental. So what else can I start with? Well, there's only one other thing on the table, so let's let's start there. Now, there might be someone who comes up with another idea, something, some third thing that's deeper than both consciousness and the physical world, and that's perfectly fine with me. But right now, I'm I'm just going okay. Let's start with a mathematical model of consciousness, and by that I mean I really need a mathematically precise account of consciousness on its own terms, not not as the standard theories of consciousness have been, which say let's look at these properties of neurons or these properties of dynamical physical systems and and maybe these properties of these physical systems would somehow cause consciousness. So you're not really talking about consciousness per se, you're talking about properties of physical systems that might give rise to consciousness. This is different. This is saying the physical world is not fundamental. So we're not going to start there at all. We're going to ask on its own terms, what is consciousness? And if you think about it, there's lots of things that, that consciousness is and does and we'd want to explain. There's learning, memory, problem solving, intelligence. Um, there's ethics and morals. There's the notion of a self. When you think about all the things that a theory of consciousness needs to deal with, it's huge. So what we have to do in science is to say, what is the simplest set of assumptions that we can start with? What is the minimal set of assumptions that we can make mathematically precise? And then from those assumptions and the mathematical theory about how they interact, can we create this whole world of learning, memory, problem solving, intelligence, the self, morals, and so forth? And so that's what we're after. I mean, we my colleagues and I have a paper called Objects of Consciousness. So, so if anyone's interested in looking at the math, if you just Google my name and Objects of Consciousness, you can see the kind of math that we're developing. But but then the, the trick is not only do we need the model of consciousness, but then we also need a mapping back into space and time. We need to show precisely how the headset of space and time <laughs> is created and whatever model of consciousness we come up with. And its dynamics, when we project it back into space and time, it better look like evolution by natural selection within the headset. It better look like Einstein's theory of space-time, you know, relativity theory. And it better look like quantum field theory, the big three pillars of modern physics, uh, modern science. Evolution, Einstein's theory of space, and quantum 
theory. Those are the big pillars. And if you can't get those pillars from your deeper theory of consciousness, then you shouldn't be listened to. So that's what we're after right now. And uh, again, the, the book came out about two years ago. Um, at the end of the book, you mentioned that you're starting these calculations with your with your team. I assume that since you're still talking to us two years about it, you haven't falsified it yet. <laughs> Is that <laughs> well, we're we're still we're still working on it. We're trying to actually show how we could predict things called scattering amplitudes from a theory of consciousness. And I'm not saying we're not going to do it next week, but we're working on it. Um, and scattering amplitudes are are you know physicists um, shoot particles together at very very high speeds. Like they'll shoot protons um, near the speed of light in opposite directions, coming out and hitting each other, and then. When they do it just right, the inner guts of them, like the quarks and gluons, smash into each other and particles go flying out. And the scattering amplitudes are just the probabilities for various kinds of, you know, two gluons hit each other, four gluons go spraying off in these angles. And that's the big, big data that, that really has to be predicted in, in physics. And, and we're trying to go there, not because I'm terribly interested in scattering amplitudes per se, but because it's the... From the physics point of view, it's the simplest kind of data that we would have to explain to actually show that we're on the right track. So so that's what we're after. We're trying to start with the dynamics of conscious agents and pull the thread from consciousness into the headset and actually predict scattering events. Then we can try to climb up. I mean, physics is easier than chemistry. Chemistry is easier than biology. Biology is easier than neuroscience. Eventually, we want to understand neuroscience, but we have a long way to crawl our way up and we're going to start with the physics. So we're working on it. Uh, I just spent this morning talking with one of my mathematical colleagues, Chaitan Prakash. We're working on specific technical issues of trying to make this thread go all the way through. Well, I've got only about a minute left with you. I want to ask you what might be a deep question. And if it's if it's out of bounds, please let me know. It has has your research and work changed anything that you any way you think about the divine in any way? I think it has implications. I think that when you take consciousness as being fundamental and you have the possibility of a mathematically precise theory of consciousness, you can start to ask questions uh, like, um, how big can a consciousness be? Can you have infinite consciousnesses? Um, And so the ideas that have been traditionally thought of as spiritual ideas about consciousness now come under the possibility of a scientific discussion. So science and spirituality could come together on this point. Wow. Amazing stuff. Thank you so much. Um, Ron's going to take you the rest of the way home in the last segment, but I just wanted to thank you for appearing on the show today. It's been great to talk to you and, and, a, and a deep honor. Uh, Want to let everybody know that they can contact Ron or me by sending that email to ask TSOE. But right now, a word from our sponsor and my employer, Sage. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. 
Have you ever been so annoyed by a commercial for a $5 ebook that you were willing to pay $10 to never hear it again? I sure have. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. Over the last several years, you've come to hate me, and I hate me too. By now, you know that for $5, you can get a copy of Ron and Ed's book. What you might not know is, for twice that much every month for forever, you can stop hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like the Diamond Water Paradox. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe today. Please, for the love of God, make it stop! When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, welcome back, everybody. You are here with Donald Hoffman, the author of The Case Against Reality, which is we highly recommend. I think it was Ed's number one book from last year. Uh, and Don, I wanted to ask you, on this consciousness topic, you seem to be fairly optimistic or believe that we can, can, can AI create real consciousness? Yes and no. It depends on how you're thinking about the whole problem. So the standard way of thinking about it is that, um, again, space time and matter are fundamental. And if you have the right complexity in matter, the right kinds of circuits with the right kinds of uh, computational structures and so forth, that somehow you'll get the right kind of complexity in those circuits and consciousness will emerge. And this is, again, part of the view, for example, in which we say that we know that machines can be conscious because the brain is a machine. The brain is a carbon-based machine. And so here we have a a concrete example of a carbon-based machine that's creating consciousness. So why shouldn't a silicon-based machine also create consciousness? And and the reason, as we've talked about, I I think that that's not right, is that the very language of space and time, according to evolution by natural selection, the very language of space and time is the wrong language to describe objective reality. Whatever it is that has true causal powers is not in space and time. So physical objects like neurons and circuits and software are a useful hack that we use to manipulate the world, but they're not themselves the ultimate nature of reality. So if we're thinking about AI and consciousness in the framework of somehow AI will somehow give rise to consciousness as an emergent property of these pre-existing physical systems, then I think that whole way of thinking about it is, is just wrong. On the other hand, if we think about space and time and physical objects as our headset, and our headset gives us access, portals, as you might say, to consciousness. So for example, Ron, I'm, you know, through Zoom, I have a picture of you on my screen. And so it's not you, and it's not your consciousness, but it is an interface that I'm using. And that interface has given me genuine access to your consciousness. I mean, if, if you look at me, if you, if you look disgusted, I could tell that you're disgusted. If you look happy, I can tell that something about your consciousness. So my interface, my headset has given me a portal into your consciousness. So that changes how we think about the AI consciousness question. Instead of saying, could the right circuits and software somehow get complicated enough to create consciousness, the question is, could we understand our headset, space-time as a headset, so well that we can reverse engineer it? 
And once we reverse engineer our headset, could we actually open up new portals in our headset to consciousnesses, right? I already have a portal right now into Ron's consciousness. I call it the face and body of Ron that I'm seeing, but that's just my icon, right? If I close my eyes, my picture of Ron's face and body disappear, but Ron's consciousness doesn't disappear. Just my portal has disappeared. So the idea would then be if we can reverse, if we can understand consciousness on its own terms, how it maps into space and time as a headset, we could reverse engineer the headset, open new portals. The technology that we create may look like AI. So we, we may end up think, having things that look like artificial intelligence with you know silicon and so forth, but it wouldn't be a bottom-up silicon creating the consciousness. It would be instead a different technology altogether, reverse engineering our headset to open up portals into consciousness. You know, we've had George Gilder on the show, and <clears throat> he wrote Life After Google, and he's kind of an economist, and he's got an information theory of capitalism, which I find mm -hmm. absolutely fascinating. He talks about some of the same things, some of your work overlaps. And I, w I just wanted to get your reaction to this because he doesn't think that AI can or could create consciousness. And he wrote this, bl the blind spot of AI is that consciousness does not emerge from thought. It is the source of it. Mm -hmm. The Oracle programmer must be outside. Yes. Now, I, I agree. When, I, when I'm saying that consciousness is fundamental, I'm absolutely uh, agreeing with him on that. And so this really points to the critical fundamental assumption that's dividing the two camps. The, 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 the critical assumption is, is space-time and matter the fundamental nature of reality or not? That's the big one. And to, and to say no is a huge, huge move, right? The, the story right now is the Big Bang happened 13.8 billion years ago. Space-time came into existence. Energy and matter were, were there. There was no life, much less no consciousness for hundreds of millions, billions of years. So in that picture, space-time is fundamental. Consciousness has to emerge in that picture as some complex outcome of, of matter. Um, but then if we're going to go this other direction, say consciousness is fundamental, we have a lot of work to do to be taken seriously, right? Because the, the space-time physical model has, has been wonderful for 400 years. It has done everything for us, and it has really worked. Right now, um, this consciousness is fundamental idea has a, is a big promissory note that hasn't been <laughs> cashed out at all. So you know, if, if I were to you know, bet my money, right now you should bet your money on the physicalists, right? Because they're the ones that can explain everything. You know, so so that's, that's where we are right now. It's, and, and it's always open to say, look, well, we haven't figured it out yet, but, but we'll figure out how neurons create consciousness. We'll, we'll figure out. I don't think that they will. I think that the fact that evolution by natural selection says the probability of zero that space, time, and matter is the right language means that we won't get that. Um, but we'll see. Excellent. Well, you know, this is a business show, so I wanted to ask you about this because I found this kind of fascinating in your book as well. You, you consulted, I think, for a jeans company and you were an expert mm -hmm. witness for T-Mobile. And you're talking about mm -hmm. color psychology and how different colors conjure up different emotions and things like that. And I guess you coined a term, chroma Chromatures, um, yes. which give a richer structure, trigger more precise reactions. You give the example of the magenta in T-Mobile's ad, that color, and I thought of Tiffany's, you know, blue box or whatever. Yes. Can you, do you see this being used more in business and advertising and marketing? Oh, it, it already is. Um, and of course, I, I can't reveal what I've done and so forth, who, who I've done it with, but I'll, I'll just 
say this, that um, the tools of evolutionary psychology are very, very powerful. We, we know how to grab your attention. We know how to make you interested in things. We know, as we talked about briefly, um, uh, what attractiveness is. We know how to make things look more attractive. And uh, I can just tell you this, that the big companies are paying lots of money to, to manipulate you. And they're doing it quite successfully. And also in product design, um, we can make genes that sculpt your body to make you look whatever kind of body shape you want. Whenever you put on clothing, you are creating a three-dimensional image of your body. The only question is, do you know what three-dimensional image that you're creating, and is it the one that you want? It turns out you can know precisely what three-dimensional image you're creating with your body, and you can craft the structure of your jeans and your shirts and so forth to give exactly the image that you want using the tools, for example, in my book, Visual Intelligence, so that we use those tools in visual intelligence to actually craft the three-dimensional structures that we want. And so without mentioning any companies by in, by name, I'll just say that um, well-endowed companies understand this and are using it successfully. Yeah. You have a great picture in the book of, of uh, Gal wearing jeans and, and the both halves are different. And it's just, just fascinating, actually. It was really good. Um, how's the book been received, Don? Uh, uh, mixed, I, I would say. I, I've gotten a lot of good reception from a lot of people. I, I think that a lot of people are, are floored by the claim that we don't see reality as it is. That's really hard for a lot of people to swallow. And so, so I get very, very strong reactions for it and strong reactions against it. It's, it's not something that people are neutral about. You either go, oh, wow, I'm, I'm ready to take the red pill, or you go, no, no, keep me with the blue pill. I mean, this is, this is really a, a, a divider kind of thing. And, and I understand. I mean, it's not been easy for me. This, is, this has not just been an intellectual journey. It's been like an emotional journey to, to really question right. my own reality. It's sort of like, what's going on here? That's why I went after theorems. So it's like, I mean, this is, this is so crazy. Let's get some theorems here to try to ground this thing. Yeah. I, you know, if you ever had a debate like with a Michael Shermer or, you know, some type of skeptic about it. I have, there's a, if, if you Google Shermer and Hoffman, there is a, uh, ah. we, we have a, we have a podcast together. Oh, excellent. We're, we're Michael and I are good friends and we disagree very, very strongly on this. And that's, that's perfectly fine. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's how science advances, right? It's by, by dissent, not a consensus. Oh, absolutely. And, and by the way, I mean, many of them, my good colleagues um, disagree with me strongly on this, but we're good friends about this. And that's, that's the way science progresses. Um, we don't excommunicate people and we don't kill people. We, we try to get uh, science, uh, you know, science-based facts and experiments to, to, and that's the way you make progress. Excellent. Well, Don, in the last half minute, you got another book coming out or in the works? Well, right now, um, I'm working with my team to develop this mathematical model of consciousness. So if, if I have a book out in three or four years, I would be delighted. That would mean that we've made some progress, but we'll, we'll have to see how the progress goes. Science goes wherever it goes. It goes. Well, if you do put out that book, we'd love to have you back on to discuss that one. We're big fans. So Don, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been an honor, as Ed said, and I, I really enjoyed the book and best wishes with your research. It's fascinating. Ed, what's on store for next week? Next week, Ron, we're going to talk about In Search of Relationship Value. Awesome. I will see you in 167 hours. This has been the Soul of Enterprise. 
Business in the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. Join us next week on Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern. That's 1 p.m. Pacific. But in the meantime, please feel free to visit us at www.thesoulofenterprise.com. 